You are listening to the Mombcast, the best weekly comic book podcast recorded in Southampton, England on Thursday nights. Two hundred forty-ninth episode, we'll be talking about this week's comics, and in a spotlight, someone will be talking about Friends with Boys by Faith Erin Hicks. But you won't know who until the until the moment arrives. But you might work it out because I'm being all weird and mysterious about it. Around the mic tonight are me. I'm Nick. Hello, and uh, me back by unpopular demand. <laughs> oh. This is Steve, uh, life partner Steve, that we sometimes talk about. This isn't him, this is Nick talking right now, but that yes. was Steve, uh, life partner Steve, Hello. as we sometimes refer to. He does exist apart from Jane. Um, I don't know if he always feels that way, but he definitely does. I think this is evidence. There could be listeners out there who think, well, they haven't been in the same room at the same time while recording. Could it be the same person? Yeah. I think that is probably a little tinfoil hat. Yeah. People say the same thing about Wankiller and James, though, and, yeah. and that's just crazy. I don't know why I invoked Wankiller. Now people are going to be, like, praying that he turns up at some point on this episode. He is unnervingly popular. I know. There's fan art. I know. Can no, you believe it? I was going to, uh, a couple of weeks ago, maybe last week, I said, no one's, no one's done fan art of us before. And of course, loads of people have done fan art. <laughs> I just, I just forget things the second they're in my rear view mirror. I, I live my life like a Mediterranean driver. The sob story works. <laughs> yeah. The more, the more tragic you are, the more likely people are to, to do stuff for you. Mm. Which, um, just five pounds a month yeah. and save the lives <laughs> of three desperate for attention podcasters. <laughs> Please send them pictures and cash. I, uh, I think the way a podcast is supposed to work is you gain a, at least one listener mm-hmm. for every episode. Ooh. Um, and we're on episode 249. Um, so it's not quite working out the way it's supposed to for us. But I, you know, I have hopes. I have high hopes. I'm I'm at a I'm at a, a convention in a couple of weeks' time talking about podcasts. That's cool. They've invited me on a panel, and I'm very good in public speaking situations. So I reckon I'm going to win every win everyone over, and they're all going to rush out and uh, and download all of our previous episodes. And then there's the piracy thing. Going to do that. I reckon that's mm-hmm. going to work yep. really well. Stick them out on the uh, on the torrent so people can uh, download them and then put them on ships and yeah. ferry them across the oceans. Yeah, and uh, and and every single one of those people is going to come back and listen to all of the previous episodes. If only there was a way to monetize torrenting. I'm hoping that whoever's uh, keeping an eye on the uh, the Momcast wiki um, will have made a note of that. Though anyway, they'll capture that. 
the mystical contributor to the Momcast to wiki. the mystical wiki that we <laughs> I don't know where it is but I'm sure it's out there somewhere well, I mean if you keep forming that the the, uh, the sob stories about oh no one's sent us pictures and um, thank you cards and uh, cakes that you could do the same for the uh, Momcast wiki and eventually so it'll, it'll just, just appear Wikis are amazing, aren't they? I think they're quite amazing. They cover a lot of bases. Who would have thought that the first one was about the Wild West? (laughs) That's probably my favourite joke I've ever heard on a Momcast. Yeah, I can't really follow that. That's amazing. The the thing that always amazes me about Wikipedia, because I spend a lot of time on Wikipedia, not as much time as James does when he's doing Spotlight, but I, I spend quite a lot of time on um on wikipedia and um i'm always amazed that one person knows all of that stuff because there's quite a lot of disparate stuff so whoever's put that website together is pretty smart and really they've got a really diverse eclectic knowledge base which is quite cool. Uh, so anyway, thanks, William Wikipedia. Yeah, <laughs> thank for you for all of your hard efforts. Willy Willykipedia, <laughs> I call him because you know him better than I do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, we go back a ways. <laughs> yeah, my week was all right. Yeah, thanks for asking. Good. You're off. Uh, you you without talking about exactly where you work. You work in education, so you're off at the moment, aren't you? I am on holiday, and I've been busy doing some drawing. Yes. And some more drawing will come, which is very exciting. In fact, a couple of drawings I did this week are in the post to somebody, uh, which is very exciting. Won't say who. Um, or what they're of. Uh, yes. Or what ransom I'm demanding. <laughs> um, uh, but there's also uh, something I'm working on for Jane and uh, something I'm working on for Thought Bubble, so that's good. And in terms of anything else I've been doing, I've, I've now finished the first three seasons of The Shield. That's a good show. And um, having a great time watching it Did and it? sort of mimicking the theme music as and when I possibly can as well. Uh, that's the one that goes... dum da dum da 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 No, that's not the one, is it? No, What's I the Shield what music? How does it go? All right, um, it kind of goes... Blinky, blink, 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 oh, blink, yeah. blink, blink. And someone goes, hey! And then there's someone in the background going... And then goes, hey, blinky, blinky, blink. That's the one. Yeah. That's it. I remember. Has The Shield just turned up on Netflix or something? Because a few people were talking about yeah, it. Yeah, not that long time. ago. Uh, probably a month to a month and a half ago, I think. So that's and so it's our binge watch of the summer. Because so it gets quiet in the summer. Just around your house? Are you a very seasonal, <laughs> seasonal house? Or just mean in general? It's reverse hibernation. No, just in terms of like good TV, yeah. it's all it's all autumn, winter, spring stuff, isn't it? So yeah, during during the summer, all the good stuff's kind of gone away because you know who stays in to watch TV. Um, <laughs> points to self. Yeah, uh, it's audio, Steve. Yeah. I know you don't do a lot of podcasting. I was just but... doing it for Nick's reaction. <laughs> I was expecting listener would just guess, read in between the lines. Um, yeah, do some work, listener. Jesus, yeah, God, you got this for free. What else do you want? Yeah, especially if you downloaded it off the off the pirate off, off, the, off the pirate ships. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so it's only it's only popped up recently, and that's the binge watch of the summer. Whilst things like uh, The Walking Dead and Homeland and um, uh, House of Cards and all that kind of gubbins is away on its holidays. Yeah, 
as they put more shows on like that, I I kind of look over at my DVD box sets on the shelf from back when I spent too much money on DVD box sets and think, well, that was a fucking waste of money. Uh, How about your week? Uh... uh I can't remember my week very much. Oh, I signed up for... I did this excellent thing that is actually comic-related, which uh, I read last week that Marvel Unlimited, the uh, not-quite-unlimited online comics thing um, that Marvel do, was going to be 99 cents for San Diego Comic-Con. There was going to be a week where it was only 99 cents for your first month. And I thought, oh, I'll definitely, definitely do that. That'll be interesting. Uh, that'll be good, and it won't matter if I don't really read any of the comics because it's only ninety nine cents, which is about ten p at the moment. So I, um, so I, I did that. I signed up, but I don't think I understood the page, uh, the web page particularly well, and ended up signing up for it at full price. Uh-oh. So got it for ten dollars, which is about fifteen pounds. So um, American currency is weird like that. Isn't really it? confusing. Yeah. I think but, it's all of the import taxes, even on digital so. goods. And uh, I spent some time with my son, but that's the other podcast. And I thought really hard about things and talked to other people while not really having any answers uh, to offer or or receive, which is the other other podcast that I do with you. That's right, yeah. Um, and then if I get my act together, it will come out on time next week. Yes! I always think that uh, coming out is a good thing and on time is even better. Yes. Although obviously no pressure. Pulling out also on time, useful. Although you can't rely on it. So if that's your method, if that's your contraceptive method, um, just uh, just warning you kids, uh, it's always good to have a backup method. Um, I like to put a little, I don't know if you've been listening recently, Steve, but I like to put a little uh, public service announcement in every episode. Oh, now. right. Do you want to talk about this week's comics? Or these most recent some comics. Should we talk about some comics? I guess we could. I mean, we're here, aren't we? Yeah, that's kind of what we're here for. Mm. Um, okay, so uh, very, very quickly, because I started, so I might as well continue. Yeah. I wanted to do a quick mop-up on Electra, Ooh. Um, as it's been a while since um, either myself or life partner Jane have been able to visit the comic shop. And I went there last weekend and picked up uh, over £60 worth of comics. Yeah. Um, in that. weight... That's, as well as in money. That's incredible. The exchange rate, uh, the uh, dollar to pound exchange rate on pounds of weight is just so confusing it doesn't even bear thinking about. You'd have to be great at maths or something. Yeah. Um, Which neither of us are, I'm guessing, because otherwise we'd have made more of our lives. That's right, yes. I would have become a, an economist or Carol Vorderman. So Electra <laughs> 3 and 4, uh, which I have now read... Three came out in June and four came out a couple of weeks ago. Still the same people, written by W. Hayden Blackman, art by Michael Del Mondo, who shares colour duties with Marco D'Alfonso. Uh, 20 pages apiece, uh, still $3.99. Uh, you can get it on Comixology for £2.49. I will be bringing in Comixology prices because I just thought you might as well mention it. That's cool. Um, and because they're in pounds because it's a co.uk thing. Mm-hmm. Which is nice. You don't have to do that exchange rate, uh, Murgatroyd. <laughs> Murgatroyd. Obviously, <laughs> the, the the first and second issue when I when when I reviewed them, and I'm trying desperately not to do this tonight, was like a this is everything that happened mm-hmm. sort of thing. I don't want to continue doing that because that's not really a review. It's like a retelling, mm-hmm. and you know, ultimately people might want to go out and buy it and experience it for themselves. I can't spoil it. 
like that. Uh, so on issues three and four, I think the thing that I really wanted to talk about was um, how reading them back to back probably enhanced or um, intensified the differences between the two issues. Mm-hmm. Whereas uh, issue three was still quite information dense, a lot of chatting, uh, a lot of detail um, in the art, a lot of things going on. Um, issue four is like a, 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 a place where you take a breather. Uh, there's some action in there. There's uh, some moving characters f- from one location to another. Um, but it almost felt to me like um, it might have been there as much to give Michael Del Mondo a bit of a break mm-hmm. from the really intense first three issues than it was just because the story needed it, if that makes any sense yeah, whatsoever. Yeah, I think so. That's not to say that the quality's dropped or anything. It's still absolutely fantastic. And I think in terms of, you know, the, the, the story is engaging. It's not groundbreaking or amazing or anything, but, you know, it's it's good enough to, to, to keep me going. But for the art alone, I mean, you, I can't really argue with the, with the cover price. You know, there's no half-arsing in there. Yeah, and there's a lot of... I, I did actually read the... I recently read the first two issues on your recommendation, mm. and um, the art... In, certainly in those two, and I think they were gearing up for a sort of a quite surreal issue in the third one. Um, there are lots of moving parts. It isn't just he's not just putting action and stuff on the page, but there's lots of shifting perspectives. And uh, I think you mentioned in your first review the uh, uh, matching up like scenes later on in the book reflecting scenes composition-wise that happened earlier on in the book and you're seeing Electra's story and then you're seeing another character's mm. story and the composition's really similar in both of them. Yep. So there is a lot to think about for the artist in those first few issues, I think. So you might be I think you might be right if it's a bit more chilled out. But what what was uh, really surprising, and I don't know whether this is an indication on arc length or just a tease, mm-hmm. is that um, there is a that there is an encounter between Bloody Lips and Electra in issue three, mm-hmm. and I hadn't expected them to meet so soon. So in terms of pacing, that stuff's really been brought forward. Um, and then at the um, uh, during during issue four as well, there's kind of a chase and a bit of a battle between Bloody Lips and Electra mm-hmm. again, all survivable, obviously. And then they meet the guy they've been looking for at the end of book four so i you know to me it's like oh this is all happening really quick but it could just be a tease for the people who are still deciding whether they're sticking with the book or not before something causes them all to separate yeah them to come back again later so um yeah it felt like a curious shift i wasn't necessarily prepared for it from the setup that i read before but um you know still delivering yeah it is lovely it is worth the money i can't believe i'm reading a marvel book still no about about one of the women who wears really skimpy clothes and not masturbating over it. That I'm thinking about me, not you. Yeah. Okay. Do you, when you think about yourself, do you? When I'm wearing, yes. <laughs> when you're dressed as Electra, right. Yeah. Well, she's Greek. I, I feel like I should. Oh, yeah, of course. Connection. Yeah, good detail. <laughs> so that's, that's the mop-up for Electra. Now on to this week's comics, both of which have quite a heavy British influence in them, which is Mm -hmm. nice. The first one I'll talk about is issue one of eight um, of Bodies, published by Vertigo. 
Um, it's written by Cy Spencer. Mm-hmm. Um, art duties are shared amongst four artists. And I'll go into more detail about the artists as I talk kind of Come about the book in general. The uh, color duties are Lee Luffridge. He does the entire book. Uh, it's a mature readers mm-hmm. book and uh, it's three ninety nine. $3.99 print price and uh, £2.49 on Comixology. 24 pages as well. It's the uh, probably the most generous out of all the books, actually, that, that I've got here. Apart from the spotlight, that doesn't count. Yeah. So what we've got is four artists, and in the book we've got four stories. Right. Um, each is told over six pages. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'll take you through them very briefly. Mm-hmm. The uh, the first uh, story is set in London's East End in modern day 2014, mm-hmm. um, and the art is by Megan Hetrick. It's a it's a gritty environment. We're we're looking at a not entirely unfamiliar environment of uh, xenophobia and racial hatred, and we we're, we're looking at a, a backdrop here of uh, anti-Muslim riots mm. in the East End of London. Um, there is a police presence and we focus uh, on two characters in the uh, writing side an undercover cop Andrew Morley and on the police side a particular police officer in right gear uh, who is Detective Superintendent Shahara Hassan both a woman and a Muslim blimey yes so uh, we get through the right scene we sort of we, the two cops kind of deal with getting themselves out of that situation and we uh, quickly move into um, a, what looks to be a murder investigation. They find uh, a dead body in a nearby alley uh, with uh, some distinctive cuts and marks on it. Mm-hmm. There you go. First story. Because they're only six pages, you get through them dead quick. Yeah. No pun intended. Mm-hmm. Uh, the second story is set in Long Harvest Lane, London in 1890. Uh, Blimey. And the art is called Blimey Governor by <laughs> Dean Ormston. Oh, I like Dean Ormston. I didn't look like him looking over at you over there, but that's really cool. That may be because it's upside down. If that's I did probably, it that way... Oh, no, that's, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. much more like it. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> uh, Dean Ormston uh, worked on... Because I did a bit of research here to uh-huh. sound a bit more knowledgeable than actually, and uh, the Judge Dredd magazine on Harkin Burr. Yeah. Yeah, he... Which uh, people like. Yeah, he's, uh, he's good. I like him. So... Um, Different artists, different style, of course. Uh, and we're now in the uh, in the Victorian era of London. Uh, uh, a young, pouty Inspector Edmund Hillinghead uh, interrupts a slightly humorous, slightly grimy public sex act. Mm. Um, and as he chases down the perpetrators uh, in an alleyway, they stumble across a dead body. Huh. With identical marks. Huh. Uh, the, st- the story then uh, takes two angles. We're, we're with um, Inspector Hillinghead for a moment as he inspects the body. It gives us some more detail on the kind of marks and what's happened to the body. There are burn marks. There's signs of flagellation. Or an, an eye has been removed. And a, a strange symbol has been scratched into one of the wrists on the dead body. And the other angle it takes is a secret sect, which has a very similar-looking symbol. And the sect itself seems to consist of police officers. Oh. Yes. It's all a bit Masonic and weird. And we move on into the future in a a place called Ongervain in London 
in 2050. And the art here is by Tula Lote, who um, you talked about just last week, I think. Supreme yes, Blue she's Rose. doing a book. Yeah, Supreme Blue Rose with Warren Ellis. She's really good. Uh, so this isn't. This is the oddest out of the four in terms of. It's set in the future. It's kind of recognisable. That's fine. But something has happened to people's memories, mm-hmm. and, and we we see this with our protagonist here, mm-hmm. um, a woman uh, detective, uh, Detective Maplewood, um, and who also has a case of shattered memory. She's confused by finding a dead mm-hmm. body. She, she thinks, first of all, it's alive. Um, she reacts to anything she encounters with a, a, a simple phrase, who are you and what do you remember? Mm-hmm. So if she's trying to piece things together herself. Yeah. Um, she finds this dead body. She doesn't know what to do with it. She reacts to it oddly. She, uh, well, she figures out what to do. She sits on it. Oh. She <laughs> can't think what to do. She can't recall the correct names for things. It's all very odd. In fact, on Garvain, the name that we are given, um, would seem to be a suggestion that perhaps in in one particular panel here that um, it's actually got a different name, but some of the letters have fallen off the side. I see. Okay, yeah. And so Detective Maplewood basically reacts by pulling this dead body up to where she lives to figure out what's going to happen next. Yeah. And eventually realises that perhaps this wasn't self-inflicted, that perhaps someone else did this to them, at which point she's visited by a very odd young girl called Bounce, who um, just says, not to worry, you're loved. Huh. Very odd. It, out, of the, out of the four, it, you get a feeling for where it's placed, but it has the most questions. Yeah. Not in terms for necessarily what's happening with a dead body, but just like, why is, the, why is this future the way it is? Yeah, because when you say they, I wasn't sure what you meant to begin with when you said they've lost their memory, but you mean like literally almost everything except breathing and eating. Yeah. They've just lost everything. Yeah. And recently, it seems like. Yeah, okay. That's nuts. Uh, and then we uh, spin into um, the Second World War, London's East End of 1940, with art by uh, Phil Winslade. Oh, yeah. Uh, this is quite noir-looking. Noir. Noir. As uh, the Mumcast uh, canon would have it. Noir. Noir. It's just, I just can't say it. That's embarrassing. <laughs> Thanks for bringing it up again, though. <laughs> So lots of shadow and thick blacks. So we're uh, in the midst of a a breaking out uh, air raid. Uh, We find a scene of torture, what looks to be torture, in a warehouse where there is a mysterious symbol that we recognize from previous tales Mm. on some of the boxes. The guy about to conduct the uh, torture is Inspector Charles Whiteman, otherwise known as Carla Weissman. Huh? Yes. He was at one point German, but is now a uh. British inspector. What is his deal? Hmm. Um, and he wants to uh, torture and maim this, uh, this gentleman, an Irishman, to send some sort of racist message, question mark? Perhaps. German. Anyway, the air raid kicks in. Uh, Inspector Whiteman has to make us leave, bumps into a police officer, kaboom, a bomb strikes, and out of nowhere, it appears, a dead body with identical marks has appeared on the cobbled ground below. What the fuck is going on? So what we have here is what looks to be perhaps the same body in the same place 
over different time zones found by police officers what the actual fuck is happening right here. So it's so well, I guess you can't you can't tell yet, but that's the impression is that it's the same body. That's crazy. I can confirm that it's the same body thanks to the back matter. It's always useful. I, uh, I I quite often don't really understand what's happened in a book until I read a synopsis. <laughs> Especially in an issue one because, yeah. um, you know, it's good that the back matter is in the back so it doesn't spoil yeah. um, your own thoughts for you as you read through it. Um, That's mental. It's, it's a really interesting setup, I think. A time-spanning murder mystery involving police work and some kind of a mystical cult spread over you know time zones do these things how closely do these things come together you know yeah it's going to be good it's a limited run as i said only eight issues so you know what you're on board for and for how long it's it, it's, uh, it's it's challenging i think that's the thing that i really like about it as i read it is like from from a creative point of view you can see that as, a, as an idea it sounds simple but the practicalities of planning it out writing mm. it getting four artists together um uh, you know on some sort of schedule to, to to turn this around but also you know there are going to be shared details so you want some things to look similar across yeah. um across the four stories makes it quite a an interesting feat i think um worth mentioning the art styles i think because we have four artists working on the on the different stories mm-hmm. they complement each other which is is interesting i mean when you when you bring artists together if they have very very distinct styles you can end up having a book that looks quite manic not necessarily that that's that that's bad in itself i mean if you were building an anthology or something then you might as well have differing styles that what keeps what keeps it fresh but there is even though they are distinct and you know definitely their own artists they're not so separate that you can't see them working with each other i see yeah they are very different artists aren't they but they are they yeah they are there's no question i mean i haven't really you know i I can't speak from experience i can't talk about the the other work that they've done Megan Hetrick, her background was um, first uh, sketch cards and oh. kind of portrait work and stuff like that before she uh, moved into doing variant covers and working on Nightwing. Ah, okay. So hers, hers is quite. There's definitely that sort of transatlantic, well, trans-Pacific, I suppose, American Japanese sort of yeah. f- feel to the way the faces are drawn and and the amount of uh, thin line detail throughout which is uh, pretty exciting you've got uh, Dean Ormston's which you know it really feels like it's happened in the past lots mm. again lots of uh, thin lines and and a sort of noir approach plenty of black in there very bold colors and well, not colors but very bold use of dark and light and yeah which which again comes across in uh, Phil uh, Winslade's which I guess is more fitting because of the kind of the noir setting mm. and uh, two Lelotes as well really kind of you know differentiates differentiates itself but still marries together it's definitely her style from some of the other stuff i've seen the only reservation i i I have on hers is that um and this is a really technical thing Mm -hmm. and it only really sticks out because it doesn't show up anywhere else Mm -hmm. is that there's she's using digital brushes and Mm -hmm. digital inks and putting this together and you can i I can sort of tell because there's an inconsistency in the weight of the line it's a really small detail but it, it's so, it, it's the one thing that that pulls me back from saying this is as mm-hmm. good as the others. You know, she's she's clearly a, a great artist, and you know everything that she wants to put down on the page works. 
Uh, it's just that uh, when you, you know, a thickness of a line would denote an outline of mm -hmm. something where a thin line would give you some details inside or a thick line would tell you that something's nearer to you and a thin line's further away. You know, it's it, it's there to draw your attention to particular things. It's like there's a temptation there to zoom in and do very thin line detail on yeah. a face and then thicker lines on the body. And it's sort of, it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily put your eye where it needs yeah. needs to go. Uh, it's a problem that I've had when I've tried digital linking it's as well. Probably why you know, you're noticing. This is it why I'm picking yeah. it up on it. It's like, oh yeah, I do that. I wonder what um, I wonder where it comes in the timeline of Su uh, Supreme Blue Rose because in that book she actually said in the back matter that she went from traditional traditional drawing methods to um, to using the computer mm. about midway through that book. And and really considered the really considered the trying to make it look consistent with what else had happened in the book. But yeah. I wonder where that happened and, and how much experience she's actually had in the digital, mm. digital art. It's interesting. It looks quite different from you can tell the faces are drawn in roughly the same way, but it's a very different looking book from the rendering style's really different from Supreme Blue Rose. Yeah. The unsung hero of the book, even though the the art is fab throughout and the writing is great and also because the writing is having to tell four different stories and four different languages mm -hmm. you know yeah because you've got completely different environments different settings um that lee luffridge's work on coloring four different artists yeah. in one book i think is something that needs to be mentioned as well you know each of those stories has to have its own palette first of all you know you want to you want to give it a a, a feeling of place so you've got kind of um, a kind of a bluish green sort of matrix feeling wash for the uh, for the colours of the um, twenty fourteen story. Mm -hmm. You've got greys and and reds, almost sort of kind of Hellboyish in feel. Yeah, yeah. So I was with, thinking um, Mignola with the with the yeah. eighteen ninety artwork. It's it 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 was hard for me not to describe Dean Ormston's art on a Hellboy term because of yeah. the colouring. Yeah. I, I think it's probably important not to have those too close together. Mm -hmm. um, and then the futuristic sort of washed out pastels of uh, uh, of warmth of the outside of oranges and, 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 and yellows and kind of uh, warm greens versus the light, the cooler lilacs and blues of, of, of the indoor settings definitely makes it feel odd kind of less real if you like that, in the that future in the future the of the weird uh, yeah, yeah. virtual lotes mm. 2050 uh, 2050 work not 2050 because that's next year and i don't think it the future will be that different so cut, if one was this out. year and the other one was next year that wouldn't be much of a contrast <laughs> no um uh, except the iphones would be different and yeah. then uh, the, the, <laughs> the coloring of uh, phil winslade's 1940 stuff actually lends itself, I think, to comics of the past because it's block. It's more block colour. There's less detail. There's hardly any gradient work in there. It's really so, vivid as well. So, yeah, it really, again, it places it in a different time from today. Um, so, Lee Luffridge, good job as well. Mm. The $3.99 seems steep when you think about it uh, on a very basic term, but considering you're paying for a creative team of six people... Mm -hmm. And the story is as good as it is, and the work is as good as it is. Again, I think that's good value for money. Mm. What next? The next and last number one of the week is uh, And Then Emily Was Gone, uh, published by Comics Tribe. That uh, was not on the shelf when I got there. Really? Or, or it was and I missed it. That's also a possibility. I've heard people talking about it, though. And I'm about to hear you talk about it. In, oh, that was nice, wasn't it? Yeah, totally Stay unplanned. tuned. <laughs> Stay listening to the thing you downloaded quick, and don't have to tune into. Quick word from our sponsor. 
Squarespace. And we're back. Squarespace. <laughs> Uh, flowers.com use our code for audible.com yes etc etc I'm really excited to tell you about um, ordering strawberries online (laughs) Uh, so uh, and then Emily was gone uh, as uh, written by John Lees uh, with art from Ian Laurie colours by Megan Wilson and Dungeon Fun Zone Colin Bell is pulling lettering duty on this particular Dungeon Fun it was a uh, comic that debuted at Thought Bubble last year with art from Neil Slorrance and it went down a treat. I think I had a lot to drink in the middle of Thought Bubble and have lost certain things. Both you and life partner Jane were ill. Oh, no, that's true. So there's probably a lot of um, general fuzziness <laughs> over the entire <laughs> weekend. It's a, it's a horror comic, so it's a mature reader's thing. Mm-hmm. Cover price of $3.50. Uh, but you can get it on Comixology for just £1.49. Mm. Part one, the box, is what we have. Greg Hellinger is uh, the character that we're introduced first. He's a, he's a haunted man, and he's seeing a lot of uh, quite disturbing and gross things. Uh, monsters, alien-looking creatures. Uh, even when he looks in the mirror, he doesn't see himself. He sees some distorted, cut-up, gruesome version mm. of himself. He's clearly troubled. Um, and is desperately trying to hide away from it um, in uh, an alcohol haze. He wasn't always like that. He was once a, a policeman of some renowned uh, renown, I should say. Mm-hmm. Let's get that right. Um, <laughs> this is the English language. It's very important. We pride ourselves on using words proper. Yes, and correcting others online. <laughs> um, and he has a he, he has a an ability to find missing people in a way that other people can't. And I wonder whether the two things aren't. That's separate from each other, right. you know. He's uh, visited by uh, a young, rather resourceful girl called Fiona, who has somehow managed to find Greg, mm-hmm. where, wherever he is, um, from the uh, Scottish island of Merske. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she's come to him because her friend Emily is missing, hence the title of the book. Right. Um, Emily and Fiona had grown up together on the island, and one day, uh, Emily had claimed to see Bonnie Shaw. Bonnie Shaw is a bogeyman of a Scottish myth. Mm-hmm. And it effed her right up. Oh. She wanted to leave the island and had arranged with Fiona to escape. But when it comes to the time of escape, Emily has vanished. Mm-hmm. The island itself has a bit of a reputation for um, missing children. And Fiona is basically appealing to Greg to help her find out where Emily and perhaps the other people are. Now, you'd think a guy who was trying to hide away from monsters and clearly wants to get drunk and do whatever he needs to to kind of not deal with these problems would just say, what are you talking about? Leave me alone. Except that the presence of Fiona seems to eradicate all of these visions he's having. Oh. So it almost inspires him to stay with her because he just wants to get rid of this stuff. That's an actual good reason for that to happen i thought you were going to say but you know he's haunted by he's haunted by the the fact that innocence uh, might be struggling somewhere do you know what i mean all, all of that all of those bullshit reasons that people give for why they do something that really their self-preservation should be should be kicking against but 
Yeah. Okay. That's cool. Yeah. So that's the that's the kind of that's the meat of the story. There's a, there's a brief aside in there of characters that I guess we're going to return to later. Mm-hmm. Um, a pair of young friends, uh, Louise and a man who uh, we are yet to know the name of, uh, are chatting about his love life on the way to a job in inverted mm-hmm. commas. That job being the brutal murder with a hammer of uh, a guy called Frank Galloway. Um, that murder uh, seems to be dealt with in a rather matter of fact fashion. Um, but the uh, unnamed man seems to get a chubby from it as well. So uh, huh. something uh, slightly disturbing going on there. I guess we'll learn more about them down the road. And the story uh, and the issue here ends with uh, Emily's parents, Claire and Gordon. Uh, Claire is um, still in grief. So uh, one wonders how recent this uh, disappearance was. Um, Gordon, however, uh, has... Uh, dealt with the situation, I think, by making a rather ornate wooden box and he wants to show it to his wife and he's saying that in this box he's containing the things which trouble him and he fears has driven him mad, but he won't show her what's in the box. Right. It's very poetic and weird and Twin Peaksy. Very, yeah, a bit odd, a bit Twin Peaksy. It's a horror comic and it's a mystery too. Um, and there are definitely some psychological things happening, some supernatural things happening, and also there are shades of some probably quite gross and violent things happening as mm-hmm. well. So a real mix, and you know, a, a perfect issue one. Lots of good setup. I, Ian Laurie's art is actually quite hard to describe mm-hmm. without sounding like you're being negative, and I really don't want to be negative about it. Um, I think when you would compare this comic to a lot of comics on a shelf in a comic shop. Um, this isn't going to look as conventional or necessarily yeah. as visually pleasing. As slick. As slick, perhaps. Pretty. I would say it is deliberately gruesome. It is mm. deliberately ugly. It's not yeah. that he can't draw. It's that, it's that this is how he does it. Yeah, yeah. And it's absolutely fitting for this kind of a tale. And Ian Laurie's background has been some self-published stuff, including Ian Laurie's Horror Mountain. Uh, mm-hmm. which is a, a book of his. So we're going to guess that this is kind of like his thing. This is his specialty. Yeah. So The storytelling all works, though, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, the storytelling absolutely works. His art is fitting for this. But, I mean, you know, these characters aren't actually, even even the ones that we uh, we would accept as perhaps innocent parties in this first issue are not that pleasing to look at. Mm-hmm. And there's probably reason for that. Um, so there we go. Unsettling, a bit odd. But I'm um, really glad that I picked that up. And if you can find it, especially on Comixology, do give it a try. 2080, I won't talk about a lot uh, except to say that it's Prog 1892. So goodbye the year 1892. Uh, we're very grateful for you using up all your resources to make this. I've really, I'm starting to tell that joke with such devil-may-care attitude. I'm just assuming people have heard it before. It's, it's like you didn't really give that full commitment. No, I am still I am still committed to it. Let's let's try again. Well, ha- um, yeah, go on. I, a, I was, I was going to say I had a question on that that whole mechanic res- resources thing. Um, it's uh, Prog eighteen ninety two of two thousand AD, uh, which means that the year uh, it was all created and conceived in the year eighteen ninety two, mm. burning up all of the resources of the year eighteen ninety two to put this comic in my hands. Um, very very nice issue. New Judge Dread story of art by Colin McNeil and. Everything else, lovely Lee, lovely Lee Gallagher on Aquila looking great. There's a giant golem in it. Um, lovely. Hi, Lee. Hmm? I was just hi saying Lee. hi to Lee. Hi, Lee. How are you doing? Uh, when you mentioned cakes earlier on, it made me think of the first time we met Lee. Oh, yeah, donuts. I saw the picture of us eating his donuts. Um, was, we all looked so young. 
Um, amazing. Ian Edgington's uh, brass, well, brass Son by Ian Edgington and I and Jay Colbard. I just want to mention it because um, it's kind of been a bit swashbuckly and adventury, but I haven't been feeling it that much. Uh, but this is kind of a weird dream sequence where we get uh, some of the nicest delivered exposition. It's it's really nice. Basically, there's this character who I guess is is like Deus Ex Machina type godlike uh, entity in the story who explains a lot of big questions we might have had about the story up to this point. But he's presented as I think at one point Rod Serling, at uh, one point um, is that Einstein? I don't know who that is, uh, but that's um, Kurt Vonnegut, I think. Hmm. Uh, really, really nice. Who does that art? Um, it's Iron J. Colbard. Who... I don't. I haven't seen much 2000 AD, but I didn't expect to see that style in 2000 AD. Very unusual for 2000 mm. AD. It looks gorgeous. It's one of the. F- it's. I think the only book that the only current story that they're also putting out in an American format, which they started doing a couple of months ago. Oh, okay. It's a few books in. It's just really nice, and it is weird for 2000 AD. Mm. It, it fulfills. It fulfills the 2000 promise that they'll experiment and, and tell weird stories and stuff. But yes, Prog 1892, goodbye, 1892 the year. So when you say it uses up all the resources of 1892, um, that, that leaves the people behind? No, all gone. Uh, all the human resources, all the, all the animals, everything. They're, they're now – have you seen the Langoliers? Oh yes, story. It's basically like that. <clears throat> every every new issue of 2000 AD costs us a whole year of time. Everything goes timey wimey reality stuff. I I I feel like you want more of an explanation than that, which I think is unfair because Russell T Davis and Steve Moffat get paid a lot okay. to do what they so do. So if I direct no the question to them, them that stuff. Hmm? If I direct the question to them, They'll say timey-wimey, spacey okay. stuff. Because I'm just worried at, at what point does uh, a prog of 2000 AD come out that wipes out like me or you? Um, because if the resources of a particular year are removed, then that's like our family tree gone. Because um, as much as people are enjoying 2000 AD, there's not going to be people around to enjoy 2000 AD in a few issues' time, surely. Yeah. Well, I mean, strictly speaking, the... the um, we're talking about a model of time travel where all of that stuff happened mm. and it's just getting used up. Because I see what you're saying. What you're saying is if one of our great-grandparents has already been wiped out yeah. in in the first uh, 1,892 years, that have been, then we would never have – none of the people creating 2000 E would, would still exist. Yeah. So it just wouldn't have happened. It would never have happened, so this isn't causing like, a paradox. This isn't like the, the back to the future sort of version of – no, time. where it this where is it a changed. different version of time. Yeah, yeah. Strictly speaking, it's it's a different it's a different version of time. <laughs> I can't think what sort of a version of time it is, but it's it's yes. I fear if you hadn't done already, I might have ruined your gag there by trying to dissect it. <sighs> no, not at all. Uh, because I understand how it works, and so does the listener. Um, you're just trying to spoil our fun. <laughs> it's um. Oh, that old curmudgeon! I, uh, I uh, stay away from my bins. I, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll write a blog post about it, but I have to, I have to, I have to <laughs> Tumblr it. Tell you, it might not make, it might not make you or the listener happy because um, a lot of it 
a lot of it might go over your head to the extent that it seems like complete nonsense. But that's just because I'm talking high-level shit and not everybody's going to understand it. The uh, the second issue of Outcast came out this week. It's written by Robert Kirkman with um, art by Paul Azaceta and mm. color art by Elizabeth Br- uh, Brightweiser. Um, it's $2.99 from uh, the image imprint Skybound. And I think Jane and I read this, read the first issue of this. It's the story of a – well, the first issue seemed to be a very grounded in reality story about a guy who was haunted uh, very much by his past life, which we saw explicitly involved being abused um, psychologically and physically by his mother um, and it was suggested that that this had – that more recently he had hurt his own daughter and um, and her mother and they were no longer around. So he's stuck in – he's he's living in – he's living in a house in a pit of his own filth basically, oh. um, not really leaving the house because he's lost his daughter um, and he's got all of these memories. But as the issue uh, – as the issue played out, it introduced a, a character who's a priest and also a character who is, for all intents and purposes, his the the, the main protagonist's sister. I'm going to see if I can get through the whole thing without having to look up any names. This should be good. Um, uh, if, I could, if I could have pulled it off without actually drawing attention to it, that would have been amazing, wouldn't it? The um, <laughs> So by the end of the first issue, what you're getting is a picture of uh, he he gets drawn into this situation where the priest takes him away. His his foster sister um, or adopted sister, it's unclear exactly what the family history is there, mm-hmm. keeps trying to pull him out of his shell um, and out of his house and forcing him to go shopping with her and stuff like that. And he's very resentful of that. It all feels very real and very raw. Um, yeah. And... Then the the priest character, who he clearly has some history with, who clearly knows a bit of his history, um, pulls him out of his house to attend what what objectively seems to be um, the exorcism of a, a young boy whose parents have gone to the priest because this young boy is behaving very very weirdly, um, and we understand as we understand it, our protagonist has a particular talent for um, exorcism and then at at that point it becomes apparent that that may be what was going on with his mum as well Mm. but it's unclear it's played very straight as him being an abuse survivor Um, and what we see in this second issue is um, a lot more of that there's uh, the first few pages are him visiting his mother who is who is pretty much comatose in a hospital bed and we don't know whether that's since he was a child or 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 a more recent thing um but he he feels guilty because it's something he did to her but we're not entirely sure what there's a suggestion that it was about exorcism um but also he feels guilty and angry and guilty about feeling angry because it it asks the question which it's just occurring to me now as kind of a pretty solid metaphor for mental illness. Um, it kind of asks the question, well, whether she was possessed or not by some external force, it doesn't matter. He still lived through being abused by this woman and still carries that around. And he also carries around the 
the feeling that if um if she was only abusing him because she was possessed by this other thing but he still hates her because of what he went through um he also ends up feeling guilty he mm. he hates his mum and he feels guilty about hating his mum and it's just this cycle of misery that this main character is going through and we see a little bit more in this issue as well uh, about his uh, about his backstory um we encounter a couple more characters that clearly had some bearing in we get a sense that we get a sense that the reason he knows the woman who came to him in the first episode is because he was um he was fostered into her house and he was one of the few children that her parents um actually adopted but other things clearly happened in this foster house other troubled kids were coming and going and and one of them turns up and there's a lot of resentment and bitterness there yeah. but we also get a much clearer sense that there is definitely something supernatural going on here um a malevolent entity kind of enters the mix but what's really <clears throat> good about this comic is the supernatural elements just don't they don't overwhelm it at all. It's still a story about a kid who was abused and went into this foster system and and a priest who believes he's helping people, but he's not really sure what it is. You know, there's there's all this question of, well, are we are we actually just hurting troubled children when we try and exercise them? Do they, are demons a real thing? What exactly is going on there? And it's all played very um, real. Robert Kirkman's script is quite matter of fact and does a really good job of imparting little bits of information with very spare dialogue mm -hmm. um, and uh, Paul Azaceta's art is he's what he's um, of a school of much more realistic artists who um, put lots of acting and direction into what's going on with these really lovely little cutaway panels so you see the main action and that's drawn in a very bold way yeah a very bold but realistic way and almost quite a static way. As I said, the first few pages are him at his mother's bedside talking to her and the mother's not doing anything, which a lot of comic artists shy away from doing those sorts of stories because it's not that interesting for them to draw But he, because it's real stuff and there's not a lot of motion going on. Yeah. But he manages to make it feel really real and really still but at the same time make it visually interesting but those beats are really valuable mm. i mean it's not necessarily something that might be exciting to draw but in terms of adding weight to a scene they're they're just incredible you need them yeah oh no absolutely especially with a story like this yeah. which isn't all action moments it's very brooding like the, for example there's there's one two uh two page uh transition where he decides um, and it's it's really clever, actually. He decides he's going to um, uh, clean out the house. Mm -hmm. So it's two pages of him cleaning out the house. And it's quite an important character moment because he's been living in his own squalor for a really long time. So the fact that he's doing that suggests that something's going on. And uh, in one of the little cutaways, he finds a tooth and then has a one-panel flashback to his mum, like, kicking him and the tooth coming out. But there are no words and you just the it's all imparted by uh, Paul Azaceta and it's all really subtle but also horrific when you get that one panel of horrible action of him as a kid and it's just it's just really good and I mean as with the two books that you talked about it's like nothing else there are lots of comics going out coming out at the moment that are like nothing else 
I, that's coming out. It's great to see. But this is one of them. It's really good. And Image are doing a really good. I had a bit of a bitch on the uh, on the Mom site about the Eyes for Image promo video that they put out at SDCC because MomComics.com. MomComics.com. Yeah, because I didn't think it was a very it was a very emotionally potent video, but it, I didn't really like the message, the way it was being presented there. But it's true that Image are basically doing a lot of these books at the moment that are just really. Um, unusual and and not like anything else out there they're really enabling quite <clears throat> decent sized talent to take risks which is quite cool. yeah that sounds like an incredible book i'll have to check it out it it, it is it really is good and it's only two dollars 99 which is nice right. but then kirkman i think kirkman's walking dead guy and i think that's always had quite a low price point as well considering how popular it is so yeah it's good it's the right sort of the right sort of way to approach comics, I think. Um, the other book I got was also from Image. It's by Rick Remender and um, Greg Tuccini, and it's called Low. Um, Rick Remender, I'm, I've said before, I'm not a huge fan of the stuff he's putting out from Marvel, but the stuff he's doing at Image, every book, he's doing, I think, three books there. Mm-hmm. Each one is very different from the others and seems to be satisfying a different, a different drive or urge in the writer. Like Deadly Class is set in the 1980s in the real world and is about a school of assassins and uh, a school of criminals basically. And and it's clearly him working through his early school life and and stuff like that. Um, uh, Black Science is this weird um, science – like mad science story about people shifting through parallel dimensions and low is kind of a post-apocalypse but it's i think it's in if it's our planet it's definitely in the far future and um this first issue does a really good job of introducing this really um unusual vision of a future where i think they're underwater it's kind of an almost Atlantean situation. The human race has, has ended up in these subterranean or underwater um, cities yeah. or domes. Um, we get a sense in this that there are separate – there are other factions as well. The first half of the book is very much about setting the scene of this one family um, who – and there's a lot of stuff in there about – I guess it's it's – the one thing that I'm really thinking about it is it's very Robert E. Howard-esque. Or um, or Burroughs esque, it's our world. I think in the very distant future, so it's got all of that post, uh, like far flung future stuff going on. Mm. But it's also it's also got this very John Carter of Mars or like far flung everything. Everything's designed to, and it looks a little bit like that. I think you read it as. Did you read this book as well? In the end? I. Uh <clears throat> I had I had my eye on it when I was looking at the uh, at the issue ones coming out this week. And once you told me that you picked mm. it up, um, I obviously didn't need to get it myself, but I did take a quick look at it mm. uh, in Forbidden Planet. So um, it's I mean it's gorgeous. Greg, uh, oh yeah, Greg uh, Greg Tuccini is just an amazing artist, and it's there's a little bit of nudity in the beginning of it, but the world is really fully realised. But the people are just gorgeous as well. It's mm. got this kind of. Uh, uh, the people are all very grounded and and they they look it's not photographic but it's very realistic but then the settings they're in is just are just crazy and almost completely alien to us, alien to the reader um and it's weird because it's it's kind of got that feel to it where it's so far in the future 
that the technology they're using, although they're having lots of scientific conversations, uh, the the main character and his wife are having a scientific conversation at the beginning. Mm. The culture and the actual technology just looks like Flash Gordon shit, and it feels about, like Flash Gordon. It's the thing about the art that that kind of stood out to me is it it sort of lent itself to um, kind of mid to late sixties illustrations of what the future would look like. Yeah, very much. That was the yeah. feeling I got from it. It does have that. It does have that feeling to it, and by the by around the middle of it, you get a sense of because the first bit of it is is mostly taking place in the two main protagonists' chambers, mm. and so you get a sense of the technology, but you don't really get a sense of the scale. But by the time um, the book kind of opens up in the middle, there's um, you get a sense of scale of big, vast vessels and and huge cities and stuff that is very much like the old pulp pulp magazine covers mm. and 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 science fiction books the sort of thing you're talking about i yep. think um the the and there's this he the, there's this uh, conceit of a a dna matched suit of armor that kind of feels like it's meant to be technological but might as well be magic the way it's presented a lot of the stuff in it is like that mm. and there's a there's um Lots of potential for swashbuckling, lots of potential for high-stakes adventures. We're told that there's a sort of an almost Kryptonian um, sense of doom. The sun is expanding and at some point they're looking at the end of the human race sort of thing. Yep. There's no real sense of time scale, but the wife is looking for scientific ways of um, – it is looking for one way of trying to save the human race and the father is looking for other ways. But they're kind of – they're just – it's like a rivalry thing they've got going. It's not they, – they clearly love each other. Their two daughters are introduced and their son um, and they take their two daughters out of the city for the first time to go on an adventure, on a hunting adventure and it all goes pear-shaped. And there's like high seas piracy style stuff going on and the stakes go up very sharply in the last part of the book. Really – Gorgeous book. Um, and if I hadn't read two other Rick Remender books at Image, I probably wouldn't pick up the next one because um, it's so gorgeous. But I kind of felt like I was having the scene set very much. And he's a very good technical writer, but it, I, I wasn't entirely sure how invested I was going to be in it going forward. But I've gone back and reread all of Black Science. Um, recently all of the issues and I've, real, I've come to realise that yeah his first issues are always a bit like that yeah. he sets the scene it's very slick but then the, he doesn't get into the meat of it till later so really good Lowe is very very good indeed um, amazing awkward middle bit awkward middle bit comicsology what did comicsology do this um, time some of their uh, some of the comics they sell are um, being made available as DRM free backups yes i think i saw that not not from all of the companies it's kind of a company by company thing isn't it it is yeah the big two aren't doing it and some of the real small indie kind of small press stuff that's turned up on comicsology aren't doing it either mm-hmm. um, image r and i'd imagine other uh, create uh, kind of uh, comic publishers at that level probably are mm. but it's good to see something anyway yeah. that that there is some trust being placed in comics on uh, comicsology customers mm. that once they have bought a comic that even if 
in some strange version of the future where Amazon loses so much money it can't conduct business anymore and Comixology disappears, that some of the comics that they paid for, they can actually keep. They can actually keep. Yeah, for definite. It's it's as if uh, I am... If I was a narcissist, which I'm not... No. But if I was, I might start to be thinking that um, Comixology heard that I was being a bit grumpy about them a little while ago and are basically trying to make me look like an idiot. Because that's one of the things. The, the um, I can't think what the word is now. The DRM, the, you know, the, effectively the DRM on their comics was one of the things that really has stopped me liking the service or wanting to get involved with it. I think the problem, <clears throat> the problem with the present mm-hmm. of our digital future is that there is a lot of uh, things that we um, purchase that are locked in a way that if we bought a physical product, we wouldn't have that problem. Yeah. And we have to sort of deal with that a little bit better. Um, yes, you, you know, you have to accept that um, if something is free of digital rights management, then yes, someone can copy it. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I've, they're... When it comes to copying stuff anyway, computers make that so easy now. It doesn't matter whether you've bought it digitally or physically. There are still mechanisms in which to copy things anyway. You know, no doubt you can torrent um, any uh, comic from the past you like that someone has scanned in and turned into a PDF or a CBZ or CBR or something like that. It can't be that tough. So it's just a case of if someone has paid, trust them Mm -hmm. to do the right thing. Um, and like I said, it's not just about trust. It's the fact that Comixology realise that as well as um, as well as wanting to use their app mm-hmm. or as well as wanting to use their website, there may be another way in which we want to read the comic we bought. Yeah. Uh, and so having um, a PDF or a CBR and being able to put that in something else is really useful. If we've bought um, PDFs or CBLs or CBZs or whatever from independent sellers and we want to manage that in our own um, library app or reader app, uh, then we now have the option to do that, to try and collect all of those things in one place. It's a good step. Yeah, I mean... It's not, you know, perfect or amazing. It would be great to see all the publishers on board, but there are obviously reasons why that won't happen or won't happen for a long time, but it's a start. I think it's pretty shrewd on their part because they've effectively just opened up their potential market loads because there are going to be people who, who, as you've said, have their own preferred ways of reading comics digitally that doesn't tally with comicsology. And so now they've they've effectively – they are in the position of being the best-known digital comic retailer and now – they're also making themselves available, making their service available to so many other people. I think it's uh, the, uh, interesting that Image have gone in on that because I guess this was probably all in the works a really long time ago. But these negotiations must take a long time. Mm. So yeah. But Image, um, Image and Boom, I think have had. Is it Boom or Dynamite? I'm not sure. Have had a lot of success with Humble Bundles. Yep. Which which are effectively digital comics, digital comics at a cheap price that are completely DRM free. Mm. So um, so they you know it would be silly if Comicsology made this option available for Image not to 
go for it because they kind of appre- they kind of understand that ethos already. They're already they've already had some success with doing that. I mean, the other thing is as well, if if because comicsology comics aren't cheap to begin with, but they do drop in price a few weeks after they come out normally, don't they? I think. I haven't really looked th- in that detail, but th- it would be good if they did. Yeah, I think they do. Um, that it, it almost isn't even about trusting consumers. I know I've said this a few times, and it's really it's probably really simplistic. But if if you get it to a point where it is so easy and desirable and cheap to buy comics your way, then presumably more people are going to start buying comics. And then you don't have to trust all of them to not share the stuff. Sure. You just have to trust half of them because there's twice as many people buying your product as there were before. <clears throat> you know, the maths isn't – it's pretty basic, but that's kind of how I feel about it. Um, yeah, I had completely forgotten about that. I was peripherally aware of that. That's quite cool. Um, the only other thing I can think of, um, and we don't have to go into too much detail about this if we don't want to, is um, Wonder, uh, Wonder Woman. Yeah, making it to the big screen after all is is that in the <clears throat> is that in Superman and Batman? I haven't really been following the story. I just as saw I understand it, yes, yeah, the um, yeah, that's a positive step, isn't it? Because we didn't know if she was going to be in there, and any female comic characters on the screen isn't a bad thing. Although she is going to be in been, a supporting there's role. There's been a question mark for years. Um, how Wonder Woman would make it back to moving pictures mm. and whether that was going to be on the TV or in the cinema. Um, and I guess if Batman and Superman are meeting on screen, um, why not put Wonder Woman in there and kind of complete the triangle? Yeah. Even if it's uh, not a significant appearance, um, it at least gets the character back on screen in people's minds and doesn't make a future project seem as daunting. Yeah. I think that's probably been the problem with Wonder Woman um, is how to start. Yeah. Um, And the TV series didn't work out. And I don't know how much talk there has been about a dedicated movie, but it's clearly not been a strong enough contender to be greenlit and to go ahead. So this is almost the reverse of the Avengers principle yeah. of let's find a way to bring her in and maybe something else will come out of it. Yeah. I mean, it should be, it should be interesting. I am I'm one not, inter- I'm not so much interested in talking about the costume yeah. or who's, who's uh, acting or anything like that, because, um, you, you know, it's hard to really make those judgments until you actually see this thing made. Yeah. Um, and I know that a lot of the internet has already been distracted by that, but just the fact that, Wonder Woman is um, is getting used somehow is a good thing yeah, in I terms so. of DC on screen. I think um, my slight problem with talking about DC movie, uh, a, a DC comics movie at all, is that where I'm not reading the comics, but I am one of the few people who quite like Zack Snyder <laughs> as a as a director. Mm. Um, my I'm I'm kind of looking forward to the film because I quite like Zack Snyder anyway, so it'll be interesting to see what he does there. Um, so yeah, I'm glad you I'm glad you cut through not talking about the costume because um, that's a bit of a rat hole, and it's one of those areas where I feel like I may be seeing something slightly different from what a lot of other people are seeing. 
because I think it's the same color as Xena's costume, but otherwise I don't think it's remotely similar. <laughs> so <laughs> it's a it's a photograph framed in the uh, style that um, gritty. Uh, highfalutin blockbusters and video games like to do where everything is brown yeah or grey and that's about it yeah so again you've got to wait until you see it on screen really one picture isn't telling you the full story that's uh, that, I think that's progress in cinema because for a while there it looked like everything was going to be blue and orange who so knew that movies for- were going back to sepia yeah yeah but well so maybe it's not progress maybe it's the other way but we there was a point when we were using all of the color to the extent that we called it technicolor because mm. we were so proud of it and then i guess the color got expensive so around the late 90s everything shifted back to cold blue and an orange didn't it mm. in action movies and Boy, uh, there's a lot of blue and orange yeah and so now we're on sepia it's <laughs> good i like it yeah. super vivid sepia vision <laughs> um yeah, that's awkward enough. Uh, the other slightly awkward thing about the awkward middle bit that Steve very kindly didn't mention is it was punctuated by me needing such a huge wee that I almost exploded through the end of my uh, comic reviews. So, uh, so uh, I now you've mentioned it. I've you've... completely undermined Steve's yeah. Steve's nice tactful speaking. On me. However, of the awkward middle bit, there is something quite awkward that. Um, I have to bring up, and that's the fact earlier on uh, you didn't do the usual how to get in touch and to... With people and do the things. Yeah, all for the benefit of shall, listener. Shall I do that now quickly? Yeah, do it. Um, you can always cut it out of this bit and, and then put, put it, it back in earlier. Do, yeah. it, just, do it as if it was I'll do earlier. it now. Uh, we are a comic book podcast. In a few minutes we'll be talking about comics. Um, probably about half an hour we'll be talking about comics. Uh, just prepping it there for me. Um, and uh, you can talk to us about comics as well in a number of different places. Uh, Steve and I are both on Twitter. Um, and Mom Comics is on Twitter at Mom Comics. I'm on Twitter at Nick site, N-I-X-S-I-G-H-T. And Steve is? Steve Bishop, S-T-E-V-B-I-S-H-O-P. Um, Steve doesn't tweet as much as I do because he tends to make sure he knows what he's talking about before he tweets stuff. <laughs> Uh, but he is there. You'll see him. He's good. Say hi. I'll say hi back. Yeah. I and promise. It's quite a short conversation. He might be able to manage more than that as well. Yeah. Um, you can email us. You can email us with any anything you'd normally send in an email and also audio contributions. You can do that by sending us an email to moncast at gmail.com. <laughs> you can also listen to all of our previous episodes. Um, and there's a few other bits and bobs there as well. Uh, you can listen to all of them for free and they've all got show notes and that's at momcomics.com. You get it right. That's a weird experience for me. <laughs> what was I going to say instead? I don't know. You might have got them mixed round. Nextsite.net. <laughs> and um, what else? Oh, there's a Facebook page. Google. And there's a Google Plus page and we're on Tumblr as well and you can find links to all of those at momcomics.com. Um, episodes also go up at SoundCloud um, at the moment. Don't know if anyone's listening to them there, really. Uh, we've uh, already established that when I say things in a sort of a desperate, pathetic enough voice, maybe people do them. So, yeah, we are we are on SoundCloud. You can go and listen to us there if you want. Uh, you can also subscribe to us at your podcatcher of choice. Um, I use pocket casts uh, but stitch is pretty good as well seems to be in vogue at the moment and itunes is the uh the don in terms of uh leaving ratings and reviews and getting in front of the most people so if you enjoy what you hear here 
Here, here. <laughs> Please do uh, rate and review us and share us with your friends. Un- unless you really like your friends, in which case you might not want to. I don't know. It's up to you. So it, depends, I- it depends how comfortable you are telling or directing your friends to um, a resource of masturbation discussion. There is a, We haven't really talked about it that much. I d- yes. Probably shouldn't. No. Uh, but yeah, we do. James and I do tend to. That's kind of your thing. I wouldn't want to. Yeah. I wouldn't want to muscle in on that and make it a three-way. You wouldn't want to muscle in on mine and James's masturbation. <laughs> yeah, I can. I can see why that might be disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so I'll cut that in. Slick. But even if I don't cut it in, we've just basically framed it in a way that's sufficiently awkward for the awkward middle bit. Yeah. Which is quite good. It depends We're on, on how. a winner. Yes. Yes. Would you like to spotlight your book? I would, if everyone's still alert. They they will be. I'll I'll cut it together so that it's awesome. Oh, it's I'll brilliant. do. Uh, I'll uh, I'll go the full unanswered on it. <laughs> <laughs> Best produced podcast I listen to unanswered. That's very kind of you. It's it's got me on it, so I wouldn't say it's the best podcast I listen to, but it's it's definitely <laughs> the best produced. And um, what you got there, Steve? So I am spotlighting a uh, lovely book. It's Friends with Boys, published by First Second Publishing, and it's entirely, in its entirety, uh, by Faith Erin Hicks. Drawfer. She's drawfered it, man. She's put the whole thing together, the whole shebang. Mm -hmm. 224 pages of fantastic comic action. The suggested retail price, 16 bucks, but you can get it on Amazon for like 12 pounds. And you may even find it cheaper in places. It's a kind of a, a teen and up book. But I mean, Anyone I'm, can I'm, I'm a grown up. Yeah. I'm in my mid 30s. I liked it. So, you know, it's it's for grown ups too. Um, God, that sounded patronizing. Anyway, <laughs> friend, Friends with Boys is is not entirely new to the Momcast because uh, a, a quick Google search pointed out that um, you mentioned it briefly 150 episodes ago yes. in Momcast 99 um, as it just appeared, uh, just started out as a webcomic back then. Yeah, I my problem with webcomics is I don't have any practice in place for it. So same, I loved it. Here. I loved it, absolutely. And then just uh, lost track of it. I think webcomics are great. I'm just really not good at keeping up on them. So I'm glad it's out as a book because I do mm. want to get it. Well, as it happens, it was always planned as a published book Mm -hmm. and faith had got the publisher's permission to serialize it as a webcomic in the lead up to the book's release right um so it started in uh july started being serialized in july of 2011 and um ran through until its publication february 2012 and you had about eight days um between the entirety of the comic being put up online and then most of it being removed and you had like a 20-page preview. So if you'd been there from the beginning in 2011 and you'd been eagerly following Faith Aaron Hicks's work, mm-hmm. then you'd have been able to read the whole thing for free and then bought the book for fun afterwards. Um, but now it's now the website serves as a, as a great preview into, um, into the book. And it seems like – I don't know whether that was the first time anything like that had happened, but first, second seem to do that with quite a few of their books now. Yeah, it's a smart way where to they, do Where they'll serialize the work up until uh, it's, it's completed and then they'll pull it and, 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 uh, and, and kind of publish it immediately. Obviously, yeah. they, they probably printed it beforehand, the logistics of printing, etc. But it's a real cool way of being able to 
get get on the train at the right time and read it for free and you know or just get the book afterwards if you so pretty cool if you've actually consistently read the whole thing you're probably not going to flinch too much at the price of the the price of a collection either are you? Mm. so that's quite good so um you'd you'd seen the, the the first few pages um so you'd have you'd have met our main character Maggie McKay, the youngest in the family and the only daughter. Mm. Um, she is in otherwise a house of men. She has three brothers, Daniel, twins Lloyd and Xander, and uh, her father, a recently promoted uh, police officer to the chief of police, therefore in need of a haircut because his hair's a bit long. Mm-hmm. Um, they had all been homeschooled, all four children, homeschooled mm-hmm. by uh, their mother who had recently, we don't know how recently, but it seems relatively recently, had left the family. Um most of the family seem to be dealing with this. It's probably scarred Maggie a little bit more than the others. Um, she's younger, I guess. Um, maybe her gender plays into it mm-hmm. a little bit. Um, it's it's nice that uh, that kind of detail of 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 the of the makeup of the family and the and the mother's leaving isn't very heavy handed. It kind of plays into a few conversations, but it never really dominates. It just kind of reminds you that it's part of the character. Um, <clears throat> it suggested that maybe the marriage hadn't been working for a while because that the the, uh, the 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 father places it uh, frames it like um, that the mother had stuck around mm-hmm. to homeschool the children. She felt it was best for the children, and that it had been framed as like a, a, a sacrifice. She'd done this for seventeen years, and now it was perhaps time for her to do something that she, that she wanted to do. So the inference there is she kind of stuck around for the good of the kids, but. It was, it was time for her to, they were old enough and it was time for her to go um and it leaves maggie in a in a kind of a a fragile position she's this is a big change in her family life she doesn't like it and she's become sensitive to other changes around her the fact that her father needs a haircut for his job and she's always been used to him with longer hair really unsettles her um, you know, he doesn't look like him to mm-hmm. her anymore when he has his hair cut. Um, and this is no more made significant by basically the thrust of the opening part of this book, which is that because Maggie isn't being homeschooled anymore, she needs to go to actual school. Yeah. She needs to go to high school. Um, and this is a very daunting part, a very significant part of her life, the biggest change, you'd argue, to happen to her yet. She, you know, she's gone from a kid who spent a lot of her time at home, her brothers are her friends, her family are her friends, uh, uh, now to being in a big place, full of uh, uh, of people she barely knows, you know, her peer group, mm-hmm. you know, who are going to be different and unknown to her. You know, I think even even if you are kind of used to social groups and used to people, when you go to any new place, you know, mm. when you move from middle school to secondary school or something like that, you kind of go, oh, you know, there are too many people I don't know. It's all weird to start this stuff again. So that the kind of the opening part of the book is is about, you know, Maggie having to start a lot of new things and learn things as she goes. The thing that you wouldn't necessarily have picked up, I don't think, I don't think you would have got that far. Mm-hmm. And it's brought uh, to our attention as uh, she makes her first walk alone to the high school is that she's also haunted by a ghost. Oh, right. Okay. Um, and it's a, it's, it's a haunting that's been happening to her for seven years. So this ghost has been in and out of her life for seven years. And um, she's sort of accepted it, but the ghost doesn't speak. 
Um, it doesn't really communicate at all. It just sort of looks at her and hovers around and haunts hmm. as ghosts have a want to do. So Maggie doesn't really know what the deal is, but has kind of come to terms with it at least and isn't freaked out by it necessarily. Um, so Maggie starts school. Uh, her, her, she's probably out of her brother. She's probably closest to Daniel and he helps guide her through but isn't necessarily holding her hand you know maggie's there still having to make a lot of the moves by herself and within the first few days um she makes friends with a punky spunky girl uh lucy who i think would fair to say it would be fair to say has something in common in the in the fact that lucy is is like she's socialized but she's She's an alternative girl. She's definitely separate. She's not following the lead of social groups around her. She's definitely her own person. Of course, Maggie being new, being homeschooled, also feeling a bit alienated from her environment. It's natural that these two would come together. Lucy isn't that far, ever far away, really, from her brother, Alistair. Um, And Lucy um, seems to almost drag him around yeah. um and it's 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 like alistair is sort of um he's he's accepting of it he's happy to do it he clearly has an affection for his sister but this it's all it's also begrudging it's like he's not entirely comfortable with with that situation and we see as well that alistair has a history with maggie's brother daniel mm-hmm. and also with the head of the volleyball team uh matt the volleyball team show up every now and then. They're not you. They're not like the complete prototypical jocks, but they they are your sort of popular, athletic, mm-hmm. very much about being normal sort of group of people. They're not total meatheads. They they don't look like meatheads. They don't act like meatheads. But they're definitely your. You've got your jocks, and then you've got your others. You know. Yeah. The face of conformity. Pretty much. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. I'm glad uh, you're around to help. Um, put more succinctly a lot of things I'm saying right just now. Just here to help, bro. Thanks. <clears throat> Broheim, as you said earlier, yeah. I didn't hear. Um, and we, fi- we find out that Alistair is essentially a jock in, in recovery. He once played on the volleyball team. He didn't like being a jerk anymore. He, in order to impress Matt, he was a jerk to his sister and felt very bad about that. So it's like um, since then, he's he feels like he's paying a debt to yeah. his sister by hanging around with her a lot. Um, and through um, through Maggie, kind of getting to know Lucy and Alistair, we see we see them kind of socialize and, and do things together. We you, a lot of this book is spending time with characters, mm-hmm. as in you know other brands of teen fiction, I'd say, and also some manga, which I think Erin is probably a little influenced by. You you will have long running stories in which you spend as much time just hanging out with the characters and growing up with them as you as you do actually dealing with plot things. Yeah. And so this happens here too. They go and see Daniel's lead role in a school play about zombies, which is pretty funny. Uh, and they also take a visit to the local museum. And this is where things start to cross paths because Lucy uh, um, is enchanted by a ghostly legend hmm. of a prosthetic hand a lost ship which seems to point towards the ghost which is haunting Maggie. Maggie seems to think as she gets closer to Lucy and Alistair that she can open up about this haunting. Mm. 
and tells them about it. They seem to be, you know, quite accepting about it. Lucy herself likes to hang around in graveyards, not because it's, woo spooky man, or, you know, it's kind of like the, the gothy thing to do. It's just that she likes the fact that there's history here. Yeah. She can learn about the past. She can learn about people. She's fascinated by that stuff. So Maggie opens up about this, and they seem to be quite accepting about that. And, and later on, Lucy listens to Maggie almost in a moment of manicness, wondering um, what to do about the ghost who, you know, who keeps haunting her and keeps showing up that, well, maybe if I can take this prosthetic hand and deliver it to the ghost that somehow the ghost can rest and move on to the next plane and I won't be haunted anymore. Um, And that's kind of, that's your setup. And that's, there's a lot of first act, not much third act in this book. You know, there's probably about half of it that's, that's all about setup and, you understand the characters, their relationships, where the where the spiky points are, you know, where people have fallen out. And because they're high school kids, everything is very much present in their minds at all times. Obviously, in high school, you spend a lot of time together anyway. You can't yeah. avoid this stuff. But it's also like it's their life. All of this stuff is their life. It's super important. Um, so whereas later you might not be so tempted to hang on to grudges and you'd be able to go, oh, well, it's no big deal. Back then, it's you, you know, this is your baggage. This, the, the, these are the clothes you wear. They, they don't go from you easily. Um, and so the, the, the second half of the book is really about the, what happens in trying to solve this ghost problem and how all of the characters end up crossing paths with each other, heightening tensions some of which may resolve, some of which get pretty messy and, other, and, and others that don't resolve at all. And it's it's interesting that, you know, in a, in a story like this, that there are a couple of things in there that just don't resolve. Mm-hmm. And in terms of a coming coming of age story uh, as, a, as a part of growing up, it's good to have a bit of that in there, I think, that things don't always necessarily just tie up neatly. They're yeah. going to hang there and you don't really know why they happened. So, to you know, obviously to talk any more about how the story ends is going to viciously spoil it, and I don't want to do that. But f- for, the, for its kind of story, you know, that it's going to have an appeal to teens, it's going to have an appeal to people who are still growing up. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also for anybody who thinks back to their, to their life going through school or just what, it, just what it was like kind of growing up and figuring out who you are. And, you know, in, in all fairness, a, a lot of us spend our entire lives trying to answer that question. Yeah. A, you know, a book like this is going to touch, touch you quite closely. I think and the writing and the feel you get from the characters is so so warm and grounded that you can really invest in them and you can you have an affinity with them you know you feel that kind of thing and it's worth noting as well that this isn't an entirely strange tale perhaps minus the haunting Mm -hmm. for Faith Erin Hicks to tell because she too was homeschooled she too grew up with three brothers and had that moment where she had to go to high school too yeah. when her peer group had already dealt with that um so there's there's obviously quite a lot of her own personal history and experience being run through this book um which makes it feel like you know an even more personal project for her than perhaps some of the other uh, other web comics and stuff that she'd produced beforehand um she's she's a canadian born budding writer and um you can see through her early webcomics, which she still generously leaves online, that, you know, she taught herself through webcomics how to draw. She went off to study uh, animation as well, and this all rounds out her art style. Um, by this point in her career, about uh, 12, 13 years in, um, she has an accomplished 
expressive, uh, very distinct style. And that the animation background itself really plays a strength in this because more than more than anything, the facial expressions and the emotions that come through those, not just the faces, but the body language too, it is definitely someone who studied that stuff. Yeah. You know, there's some... Some comic art you can look at are poses and they're not necessarily very realistic. They're just, they're poses suitable for that moment in time. Whereas you can, not just through the dialogue, you get so much through facial expressions, through body language, through how they move through a scene that tells you how they feel. And that's a real strength in Faith's art that kind of makes this book even better than I think it would have been had it just been a strong on story. Yeah. Um, it's it's got some. We were talking earlier about the sort of the the trans-Pacific influence of of Japan and, and America. It's it's clear to me that she spent some time reading some manga. Yeah, and I mean, just the fact that it's printed in this sort of format and is is a self-contained story alone is not a, a foreign thing for manga anyway. Yeah, but. Um, that that is meshed with her animation training that's meshed with her own influences when developing you know her webcomic it's all um really accomplished and active and emotive stuff um it's really appealing it makes you want to read the book it makes you want to look at more of her stuff i know some of her earlier work is more tinged with fantasy and the supernatural i don't i don't naturally find myself drawn to those kind of things mm-hmm. but and when they're when they're told in a kind of a grounded way that they can often kind of bring you in a little bit more and the whole haunting thing is is it's it's a backdrop and it's a driver for moving these characters into positions where they'll clash but it's it's never the thing yeah you know the thing is really about about this moment in Maggie's life where she's going through an immense change and having to deal with new things and find her place in, 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 a, in a much bigger world than she'd experienced before. Um, like I said, you hang out with these characters a lot and it's time that isn't wasted. Um, it's, it's warm, friendly dialogue. It's stuff that you can imagine people really saying. It's fun. It's funny. Um, it's, I, I mean, I, I don't know what else to say. It's, it's, it really is a great book. And it's not something that um, had I not seen some of the preview pages online, it might not have been something I would have ever looked at, but I'm really glad I did because it's a fantastic book. Hmm. Thanks for that, Steve. That sounds awesome. You're very welcome. I'm actually just looking at pages in it now. (laughs) (laughs) Right. What are you up to with the rest of your week? Any plans? Uh, hopefully not melting in this room. This room would be a start. is very hot and I got rid of all of my excess moisture a little bit ago. So we do need to get out of here. That's absolutely right. I'm away at the weekend. I've got a wedding and stuff. So um, that's literally all I can think about. Is that is that by dint of having like a, a big family network or is it a friend? Yeah. Weddings have sort of trailed off a little bit in the last few years because most people had got married. But yeah, there's a, there's a couple still left to get married. Um should should be quite should be quite nice. I'm going to have to try not to drink too much because Greek weddings always have lots of drink at them, mm-hmm. and I have a tendency to drink too much in situations where there's lots of drink at them. And are you one of those bouncy, active drunks? Um, 
I have my moments. Actually, I'm more bouncy and active when at English things because Greek dancing scares me. I can't go on to a Greek dance floor. I have – there's video that thankfully I think is lost to time as it didn't come up at my own wedding. I'm assuming it's lost to time um, of me dancing at a Greek wedding. It's not – it's not even it, – it's fear and uh, upset that at a level where, you know, everyone always thinks, oh, it's funny. Nick really doesn't like dancing at Greek wedding, so let's get him up there. I will hide in a toilet is it a bit and have like, done in the past. Is it a bit like a well-dressed mosh pit? No, no. There are there are moves. There are actual moves that people do, and you have to move in a very specific way. Right. It is not something you can get away with doing your Beastie Boys dance at, which is the dance I do for everything. So, yeah, you can't just like slump forward in a vaguely American teen hip hoppy way. Just won't cut it. You've got to move your legs and 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 do things. But I just don't. I don't like it. I'm getting really anxious just talking. It sounds about like it. it needs practice and everything. Yeah, there are schools. God. Um, yeah, I, I, uh, if it looks like they're going to try and get me up there, I will go and hide in the toilet. I will, even if people come to the door, I will say, I'm being sick, leave me alone. <laughs> even if I'm not, I don't care. I've become a heroin addict. You don't want to see this. Don't come in. Don't come in. Actually, I could just say I'm masturbating, couldn't I? <laughs> They'll leave straight away. Yeah. So that should be fun. Um, I don't know, that's it. More podcasting next week. Yeah, it's it's. I mean, if you if you heard what I'd been doing, it'll be the stuff that I will be doing. Um, so yeah, yeah, more podcasting to come, as you say. Drawing, yes, good. I want to see your next comic. Your last comics were amazing. I'd like to see it too. <laughs> <laughs> um, listener, thank you. You've been extremely patient and lovely, and you always are. Um, do us fan art. I don't. We haven't really done any characters. This week, James is really the source of all fan art, I think. That's okay. I, I think, you know, I'm sure James is torturing himself um, for not being able to make this episode. And yeah. it's good for him to feel like that he still has a purpose. <laughs> you know? yeah. That he's got a valid contribution. He does. Um, he and, do, he does is, voices. Well... You say that, but I mean, I was going to say the talent is leaving a room, something happening, and then him coming back. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Actually, you're absolutely right. Um, we haven't really we haven't really talked about what Jane's up to. I'm assuming something whimsical. Uh, she was away on business today. That's not whimsical at no, all. No, no, no. Well, <laughs> you don't know what the business is yet. I oh, know that's, that's true. That's the thing. She 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 uh, she had to go on a field trip. Um, and it involved um, some biological experiments, something to do with a, 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 a deadly virus, <gasps> and uh, that she had to um, basically supervise some uh, quite grotesque zombie tests. Right. That is, she is going up in the world. In the past, she just used to kill the odd zombies, but she's become part of the... What, part of the problem or the ultimate solution? I I'm think, not sure. I, th I think um, she's taken that previous experience of zombie training and one-to-one -one zomb combat or zombat, <laughs> zombat, as they talk about it in the business, <laughs> um, and uh, escalating that into a more organized uh, anti-zombie uh, league, Okay, probably, um, 
which uh, obviously involves some quite in-depth biological research in what happens to the human body. I have faith that she won't uh, allow it to sink too deeply into bureaucracy. She I, likes to get her hands dirty on this score, doesn't yeah, she? I, yeah, I, I, I hope so too. It would be an awful mess <laughs> if um, there were too many cooks involved. Yeah. Much better that this particular thing is um, more like a you know a benevolent dictatorship than uh, than a committee. Yeah. Oh no, definitely benevolent dictatorships. Trump committees all the time. I think. Um, well, uh, good. I'm glad that I'm glad that she's busy. That's what's important. <laughs> it's just a shame these things keep happening on a Thursday. I know it's weird. Um, so that's Jane. That's you. Yeah. Uh, I've done me. Uh, I've thanked the listener already. This is this actually this is we'll leave a little gap here, listener. This is the bit where you can tell us what you're doing. <laughs> oh, that's great! I hope you have a nice time. Damn it! It's just just like uh, just like a guest to come in and make us look really bad for the previous 240 episodes episodes where we didn't give a shit what the listener was doing. It's a teachable moment. I know. I'm learning so much. <laughs> I guess that's us. Bye bye. Bye bye. Should we do that again? Yeah. Should we? Try yeah. again. Okay. Three, two, on, on one. Okay. Three, two, one. See Bye-bye. There is a lady who works in the same place as me who enters the same – she's a really good artist and she enters the same portrait competition every year. But that's literally the only painting she does every year. She does one painting a year for this portrait competition. Doesn't really care about winning. She just likes to do it. And I, I have sometimes had the conversation with her, well, if you like painting that much – why why do you only do it once a year but uh, but other people are essentially unknowable aren't they she's never really given yeah. me a good answer but i always leave the conversation thinking oh yeah that makes sense and then i get back to my desk and think she played a mind trick on me that doesn't make any <laughs> sense at all you're going to cut most of that out i think what i just said uh, no before that all the nonsense about 24 that no one's going to want to hear that are they Probably not. No. Uh, my understanding of this podcast is that uh, uh, whether or not people want 
to listen to it hasn't really been a factor in any of our decision making so far. <laughs>